Psalm 100. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. Psalm 100, a very familiar psalm. I know at least three songs based on the lyrics of this short five-verse psalm. And yet, I trust there is much good and rich food here for us to learn from today. A psalm of giving thanks. I was trying to come up with a title for the message this morning. I just went with the inspired title of Psalm 100. I didn't um, flatter myself that I could improve upon it. And it is a truly wonderful and remarkable psalm. Let's have a word of prayer and we will read the text. Lord God, we are your people and we would hear from you today. We would hear you speak through your word by your spirit to our hearts. So Lord, give the increase. Give us understanding. Conform us to your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read, and I like this, this new tradition. Let's stand and read the 100th Psalm. Israel would stand at the reading of God's word, and sometimes in the hot sun, it would be the entire book of Deuteronomy. So you guys have got it easy today with a mere five verses. The 100th Psalm, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Please be seated. A short psalm, a familiar psalm, and yet packed in these five verses are seven commands for thankful worship. The title of the psalm is unique. There are no other psalms titled a song of giving thanks, and that word for giving of thanks, which also occurs in verse 4, Between that and Psalm 95, that's the only occurrence of that noun for thanksgiving, that specific word in the Bible. In fact, there are a lot of similarities between this psalm and last week's psalm of Psalm 95. Both open out with a call to a joyful shout. Both involve that word for thanksgiving, and both use the imagery of us being the Lord's sheep. In fact, the similarities were so great that when Pastor Daniel was looking at it, he lamented, he said to me, Jeremy, I preached your message last week. No, you didn't, Daniel. No, you didn't. There is a lot of similarity, but there is difference. There is difference. So we're going to look at this. The seven blanks on your outline correspond to the seven commands in this psalm. Seven imperative verbs, seven instructions for the giving of thanks. This is not the instructions for all worship. There's no confession. There's no making of requests. Uh, there are other elements, but this is, this is an instruction for the giving of thanks. There was a thank offering that the Israelites could give. And so whether this corresponded to that or a particular festival or just some sort of joyful occurrence, this is how the Lord would have us rejoice in him. And as it comes at the end of a series of psalms on God's kingship, it, it sort of summarizes and brings to fruition how we should respond to knowing who God is. And so we're going to dive in with these seven commands Looking at it in four points. First, worship the Lord with joy and gladness. Verses one and two. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. 
Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And your first blank there is shout to the Lord with joy, all the earth. Shout with, to the Lord with joy, all the earth. Some of your translations will say, make a joyful noise. We should encourage the tone deaf among us that the Lord is not looking for in key singing, but for joyful singing and joyful noise. This is uh, the word used for a triumphal shout a victory or a king's subjects rallying around him. And it is a call to worship. Our, our worship services begin with a call to worship. The first song that we sing before the announcements are given is the call to worship. And as the Israelites would approach the temple, there were psalms of ascent, psalms of preparation for worshiping God. And this opening line serves as invitation. Yell, shout joyfully to the Lord. And I want you to notice both who they're shouting to and who is invited to shout. Now, there's a, there's a couple names for God that'll appear in your Bible, but when the Lord appears in all capital letters, that is what the translators pretty much across the board in all translations have chosen to designate Yahweh, God's special covenant name. Distinguish Elohim or El can be any God. And the Lord is God, we'll see in, in verse three. But here, it's a shout to this special Jewish Israeli God, the God of all things, but the one who revealed himself to Abraham, the burning bush, I am who I am, that God. Shout to him. And who's invited? Not just Israel, not just God's people, but all the earth, all creation. This, this envisions a, a, a universal, worldwide acclamation. In fact, next week, we'll see a, a, in Psalm um, 103, we're going to see the same thing develop even further. In some senses, you could view this as, as, as an invitation, a missionary call. All those in the world, all those who are out there are invited to come without restriction if they will follow the rest of this outline. The Lord invites all to worship him. The Lord invites all to rejoice in him. The Lord is a savior to all those who would turn to him. And so this opening line, this call to worship invites the whole earth to come and worship the Lord. Secondly, the second command given, serve the Lord with gladness. And the word for serve can mean to be a slave, to be a servant, but in this context, it's the notion of worshiping in service. If you remember when Pharaoh um, was, was called upon by Moses to release the people of Israel, Moses' reason given was so that the people could go out into the wilderness and serve the Lord with sacrifices. It's one of the reasons why we call this a worship service. You ever think about that? This is a worship service. The act of worship is a way of serving God. And whereas the Lord does want us to be his dutiful servants, slaves, if you will, before he wants us to do things for him, he wants us to rejoice in him. He wants worshipers before he wants workers. The Lord seeks our hearts before he seeks the work of our hands. The Lord seeks our affections before he seeks us doing anything for him. And it's easy to skip over that. Pastor Daniel made a point of this last week, but the Lord just doesn't want worship service. He wants service with gladness, with gladness. And it's easy to brush over that. It can be easy to think as long as you do the right things and you go to the right places and you come to church and you stand up and you sit down and you sing, that you've done what the Lord requires. But gladness is a very, very important qualification now listen to this in Deuteronomy 28. 
The Lord, speaking through Moses, rebuking Israel. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. So how serious does the Lord take gladness, joy in him? Very seriously. Israel is told they'll serve their enemies because they did not serve the Lord their God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. So it's not, it's not the rituals of worship that, that the Lord is after. It's not us singing particular songs or performing certain rites or doing certain things. It's a heart that rejoices in him. And, and this makes sense because God is the supreme value. God is the ultimate good, as we'll see at the end of this psalm. His, his manifold excellencies are unspeakably limitless. And he wants people who see him as he is, or at least in part through his word, and respond with joy, with gladness. The demons know who the Lord is. James says the demons believe that God is one and they tremble, but they don't rejoice. They don't love him for who he is. And so here, this service that they're calling, the, the, the initial command calls people to worship. The second is to enter the worship service, but to enter the worship service authentically. You think of the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman over which mountain was to be the worship of God. And Jesus says, well, technically it, it is the mountain in Jerusalem. But the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. Pretty soon, the place of worship isn't going to matter anymore. And what the Lord is after, and he's always been after, is a heart of worship. And this, of course, begs the question, what do you do if you, like me, have days where you aren't filled with gladness towards the Lord? And again, Pastor Daniel helpfully pointed us back to Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Gladness in God is not something you can well up within you. You cannot make yourself love what you do not love. You cannot make yourself cherish what you do not cherish. And even that gladness is the evidence of a work of God in our hearts. And so if you're here today and, and you hear these commands for joy and gladness, and it just sort of sounds like trite phrases, I, 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 I plead with you, call upon the Lord to work on your heart. You, you can't make yourself love what you don't love, but you can call on God to do that. You can call on God to change my heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. Create me a clean heart. Lord, give me a joy in you. You can do that. Because the service the Lord seeks is useless if it's done apart from a heart that is glad in him. It's useless. And if we skip over that, we become Pharisees. We become people who just do the right things and go through the right motions and go to the right service and sing the right songs. And the Pharisees did all of that. The Lord is seeking us to serve him with gladness. And then, thirdly, to come into his presence with singing. To come, to enter. And this, is, this should be wonderful. This, this God who, who in Israel came before him at Sinai shook the mountain, and they were terrified. And they said, we're not going anywhere near that mountain, Moses. You go talk to him for us. This God says, come into his presence. But again, there's a qualifier. It's not just any old way that we come on in, sort of waltzing on in. We come in to his presence with singing. And again, song is a significant part of our faith. I've talked to people who are so into the word and the text and theology that they have little time for singing. Singing seems kind of unimportant. We won't be studying the Bible in heaven, but we will be singing. 
And in two parallel passages in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16, I want you to listen to this. To the consequence, first of being filled with the Spirit, and then the consequence of being filled with the Word. Ephesians 5.18-20. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of opinions today of what it means to be spirit-filled, and in a few weeks we'll address some of the misconceptions or address some of those issues, but I'll tell you first and foremost, you show me someone who is constantly singing to God, I'll show you someone who's spirit-filled. You show me someone who isn't, doesn't enjoy singing to the Lord, I'll show you someone who's not spirit-filled. It's right there in Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That is the consequence, that is the outflow of a spirit-filled life. First and foremost, you don't need to look to signs and wonders, just look to song. Or we can take it in Colossians 3.16. What's an evidence that the word of God is richly dwelling in you? Well, listen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you notice that conglomeration? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. You could, might as well just say Psalm 100. Again, you show me someone who is constantly, the overflow of their mouth is song and praise to God. I'll show you someone in whom the word of God dwells richly. You show me someone who doesn't enjoy singing, who doesn't enjoy this, I'll show you someone in whom the word of God is not dwelling richly. Song is important. Joyful song. And again, this gets back to the heart. This should come out authentically as the overflow of the heart. If you're here today and again, you don't enjoy singing particularly much, the solution isn't to grit your teeth and do it. The solution is to call on God for a change of heart whereby the praise of the Lord overflows naturally. I mean, I think we all get this. I got some friends who are fans of the Red Sox. I'm a fan of the Red Sox. Up until apparently last night, they've been doing relatively well. And when you, when you love something or someone, what do you do? You talk about it. You, you, you praise it. You meet someone who's in love or recently engaged and they just can't seem to stop talking about, praising, speaking of the excellencies of the one whom they love, the one whom they adore, the one whom they cherish. It's not work for them. It's not work for a sports fan to praise their favorite team. It just happens naturally. When something satisfies you, when something pleases you, when something moves you, what do we do? Without exception, we praise it. And we want to find people. We proselytize our favorite sports teams. I've, I've seen it done. We do that. Like, do you know how great? And then you fill in the blank is. And that's what's going on here. A heart that's filled with joy and gladness to the Lord is naturally overflowing in shouts of joy. It's naturally overflowing in praise and in song. So if that's not where you're at, don't skip the root. The root is that heart that is satisfied with God. A heart that delights in God. And, and this psalm is going to give us reasons for that. It's coming up shortly here. In, in case that's not where you're at today, if you're not, this isn't describing your heart, there's going to be warrant reasons. We're going to see the character of God put on display in a few verses to fuel that fire. But that's what we're looking for. So the first three commands, shout, Serve, come. Next, verse three, know the Lord 
in truth. Know the Lord in truth. Verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastures. Now I know that some of your Bibles in that second line say, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. There's a slight revocalization of a Hebrew word that could yield either readings. I think the better reading is the way the ESV has it, we are his. And here is calling upon us to know the Lord. Now, this concept of know isn't about intellectual knowledge. It's about confessing, acknowledging that the Lord is God. And this really is the, the place that worship has to start. It's assumed prior to this. What's the point of shouting to, the, to Yahweh all the earth if they don't know who Yahweh is? And so now that the psalmist fills in some of the information that is necessary for this type of joyful shouting, serving, and coming, and it's knowing the Lord is God. It's interesting. In verse 3, we look at God as the creator and providential sustainer and shepherd. And in verse four, 5, I mean, we look at God as Savior. And he's praised for both. It's the same pattern we see in Revelation when they're in chapter 4 and then 5, there's two songs of praise to God. The first, praising him for creating and the second, praising him for saving. And so our worship of the Lord has to start with the knowledge of who he is. He is God. He is God. And that may seem simple, but to acknowledge that in everyday life, to acknowledge that means, in effect, that we are, the next line, creatures. He made us. We did not make ourselves. He made us. He is God. As, as we... As we as we stop and think, those two, those two pieces of information are mutually necessary and dependent. Calvin, in his Institutes, if you ever have a chance to read Calvin's Institutes, it's a little laborious, but I think well worth it. And he starts asking the question, which is really profound, what is the most foundational knowledge that we possess? And back in his day, in the pre-Reformation, the notion was the knowledge of God was first. And then if all of you who are familiar with Descartes and his um, I think, therefore, I am. He said, well, no, the knowledge of self is first. Well, Calvin, I think brilliantly, said, no, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are both foundational and they are mutually dependent. What he meant was this. To know that there is a God is to know that I am not he. Right? To know that there is a God is to know I am not he. And to know myself as creature is to know myself as made by another. And so the knowledge of God, there is a God, and I am not he, I am his creature, are, are foundational. If you miss that, you're going to get off to all sorts of wrong conclusions. And so the psalmist here says, no, stop. Know that the Lord is God. He made us. And there's the knowledge of God. There's the knowledge of self coming together. Do you know yourself as made by God? You're not the product of random chance. You're not some chemical accident. You are the made creature of the living God. And there are no other gods. He is God. He's not one of many gods. He is God. The Lord, Yahweh, is God, and he has made us. And here's the good news. We are his. Now, some people resent that. They resent being owned. I delight in it. I'm not just out here at the outer reaches of the galaxy flying in space as a collection of atoms going nowhere, doing nothing. But I am made by the living God, and I am his and so you can cherish and delight in that truth, or you can kick against it. There's a sad, sad testimony in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 10 and 11. Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Sad. And then verse 12 goes on with this wonderful invitation. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so here, this psalm inviting the whole world to come and worship Yahweh, to worship the Lord, it starts with the ground. Know this. If you want to come and worship God, know this. He is God. He made you. You are his. And you can delight in that. Because not only are we his, it goes on, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, which brings to mind all sorts of biblical imagery. Psalm 95, the same imagery. Because we are his, he takes care of us. He takes care of us. Turning your Bibles to Ezekiel 34. There's, there's many passages in both the Old and New Testament that develop this thought of the Lord as shepherd. But my favorite, and probably one of the most developed, is Ezekiel 34. Because remember, this is being given as fuel for praise, as warrant for the joyful shouting and singing and serving that's taking place. And so again, if you're here today and this isn't describing your heart, perhaps as we look at God's heart for you, the Lord might be pleased to change your heart as you see his heart for his sheep. Now, in the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 34, the Lord rails against the would-be shepherds of Israel who don't actually care for the flock. They don't actually shepherd. They feed themselves. They get fat. They rule harshly. And then after denouncing them... The Lord says he will shepherd his flock. And I want you to pay attention to the emphatic first-person pronouns. I want you to see the Lord's heart for his sheep. I want you to see how passionately he cares for his flock. Verse 11 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I Seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with, on good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Do you see God's passionate heart for his sheep? Now here... It's being directed at Israel and Babylon and the Lord promising that Israel is his flock. He would regather into the land. But one comes along in the New Testament in John 10, echoing similar words and says this. John 10, 14, Jesus now speaking, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Do you know who those other sheep are? That's us. Jesus has sheep beyond Israel. 
And so Jesus piggybacking on all of these shepherding metaphors of the Old Testament, speaking to Israelites, says, I'm the good shepherd of my sheep, and I have other sheep. And so God's heart for his sheep that we see in Ezekiel is God's heart for us here today. He is passionately concerned to care for us, to bind up the weak, to heal the sick, to mend the injured, to seek the lost. And that's what it means to know the Lord, to know Yahweh as God. And and do you not now see the reason we have for rejoicing, the reason we have for delighting, the reason we have for celebrating who he is for us, We didn't make ourselves. We're not God. But there is a God who made us, and he cares for us, and we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture, and he cares for us. Praise the Lord. Serve him with gladness. And after this invitation to know the Lord and this explanation of who he is for us, the psalm moves on now to a second invitation to worship, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Here we get the final three commands. The first, enter with thanksgiving and praise. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And now we're definitely moving into this notion of corporate worship. Now these courts and gates speak of the, the temple in Jerusalem. They're not metaphorical. They're real. And so as the Israelites would approach and go through the the walls and enter into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women and the children, they'd be approaching God. And again, notice how they're to approach with thanksgiving, with praise. Everyone is invited to come who will come rejoicing. Everyone is invited to come who will come in the right knowledge of who God is. If you know Yahweh, if you know who he is, and you delight in who he is to you, you are welcome to come. But those who are not passionate, those who don't care, those who may know truth but like the demons hate it, they are not invited. But all, any, anyone here who would come gladly, thankfully, is welcome to come. And now we get the first mention of this thanks and thanksgiving, which the psalm is titled, the giving of thanks, praising God, recognizing what he has done for us, who he is for us. So we enter with thanksgiving and praise, which gives way then to the next command, to give thanks to him, to give thanks to him. And and thankfulness is, is a very important spiritual virtue. The failure to give thanks, I think, is responsible for a lot of sorrow in our lives. Because when we are not thankful, we are not looking at who God is or what he has done for us. Generally, when we're not thankful, we're looking at what we lack, what we want, what we don't have. What was one of the primary sins of Israel in the wilderness? Thanklessness. Grumbling. God parts the Red Sea. Oh, we're out of water. We should have gone back to Egypt. God provides manna. We're tired of manna. We want quail. Thanklessness is the reason why they tested the Lord and why, as we learned last week, they did not enter his rest, grumbling and complaining and thanklessness. And if we just stop and look at who God is and what he has done, there's so much to be thankful for. Just back in verse 3, he's our shepherd. He cares for us. He made us. Thank him. In fact, Philippians 4 links thankfulness as as one of the best cures of anxiety. Listen to this. Very familiar passage, Philippians 4, 6 to 7. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I get worried, when something scares me or frightens me or prospects of something makes me uneasy, I go to the Lord with my requests, but sometimes I'll forget to stop and thank him. And it serves as medicine for us as well, because as we stop and think about the good things the Lord has done for us, as we look down our list of things to be thankful for, well, what does it do? It reminds us of his goodness. It reminds us of his care. And it makes it so much easier for us to trust his goodness in this circumstance. As I look back on this catalog of the Lord's provisions for me, the Lord's goodness for me, the Lord's salvation, as I look at this now much smaller problem, it's so much easier for me to trust and believe him. But, but when my problem's up in my face like this and God's far off in the distance, I, I've used this analogy before, but when your problems are right in front of you, sort of like the heat coming off the highway will warp what's behind it. So our image of God can warp. And so, no, you gotta flip it around. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done. Thank him for what he's done. Praise him. And then finally, point C, bless his name, which is to issue praise, to issue praise. And the picture is not of a God up in heaven who, like some vain old woman, just wants us to tell him that he's really wonderful. That's not the picture of God. And C.S. Lewis wrestled with that. That's kind of the expression C.S. Lewis used. He wrestled initially as an unbeliever with this notion of worship. Why is this all-sufficient God so concerned that we tell him he's wonderful? Doesn't that suggest some deficiency on his part? Well, the answer is No. As I said earlier, praise is the natural outflow, the natural outpouring of satisfaction and joy in something. When I first got engaged to Serena, I was telling all of my family and all my relatives just how wonderful she was. It wasn't work for me. You've done this if you've seen a good movie, listened to a great song, been to a great concert. You tell people, you, you post on Facebook about it. And so the Lord, again, is after our hearts. He wants us to love him, to be satisfied in him and not with stuff. And the outflowing of that satisfaction is worship, is praise. Which is why this psalm links all the praise to joy and to gladness and thankfulness. And Jesus talked with the Pharisees who think for their long prayers they'll be heard. If, if our praises don't come out of genuine hearts of joy, gladness, and thankfulness, they're, they're clanging cymbal and a bleeding in God's ears. And so we've seen already, the Lord is God. He made us, we're his sheep. But now, adding more and final fuel to this fire of worship in point four, we get reasons for our joyous, thankful worship. The psalm doesn't call us to something that it doesn't give us grounds to do. It doesn't just call us to worship the Lord, but already, as we've seen, the psalmist has given us reasons for worship. But now, we take a, a good look at the ultimate reason. For those of you who are in our tough men class, you'll notice the significance of verse five starting with four, which means that what follows is a ground, is a reason, is a support. Why do what has come before? Why shout? Why serve? Why come? Why know? Why enter? Why give thanks? Why bless? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations now, turn your Bibles to Exodus 33. The conglomeration of those three terms, the Lord's goodness, 
his steadfast love enduring forever and his faithfulness to all generations is, is a theme throughout the Bible. But where it begins, its origin, its first showing up is in Exodus 33 and 34. And as you turn there, I'll, I'll set the context a little. Israel has come to Sinai to enter into a covenant with the living God. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he neither eats nor drinks, and he communes with God. So the Lord relates to him the law, and Israel gathers around the base of the mountain, and they wait. But after some time, the people say to Moses' brother Aaron, we don't know what's become of Moses. Make for us gods to serve. And if you think we wouldn't do the same thing, <laughs> you are mistaken. And Aaron does. He makes a golden calf. And the Lord burns with anger and he tells Moses that he will destroy Israel and start over with him. And Moses in, in 22 and 23 intercedes for Israel. And something amazing happens. The Lord relents. And we learn something new, at least new if you've started in Genesis up to here. What we've learned about the Lord that is new is this Lord who is and who is holy and who is righteous, he is a God who listens to righteous intercession. We got a hint of it when Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, but however, that intercession failed. Here, Moses intercedes for the people and the Lord relents. This, by the way, setting up Jesus Christ as our current intercessor, far more righteous, far more wonderful than Moses, far more effective in his intercession, but that's for another sermon. And after this relenting, Moses cries out to God, to show him his glory. And in Exodus 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, keep your finger here because... Our next two points will also come out of this text. But So the ground the psalmist offers for why shout, serve, come, know, enter, give thanks, and bless, because the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Now, we think of good, and I think we can think of it too low of a sense. That cheeseburger was good. When the Lord says he is good, when the text says he is good, it's talking about his goodness. The Lord is quantitatively good. What he does is good. He made the universe, and it was very good. And here, this goodness summarizes what's about to happen in 34, when it says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you in Exodus 33, 19. What he is saying is, all my goodness is my name. And so all of his goodness is what's summed up in points B and C here. The Lord's goodness. But just stop and think, the Lord is good. He is many things. He is holy. He is just towards sin. He is wrathful. He is good. He's a good shepherd. He's a good God. He's a good creator. And so in Exodus 33, the Lord says he'll cause all of his goodness to pass before Moses. And then 34, 5, it happens. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. And this is, according to 33.18, all of his goodness. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, 
Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is all the Lord's goodness at least according to this passage, as the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, as no one can look on him and live, he walks by and he proclaims his name, and what he proclaims is that his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness is to all generations. And this pairing of of steadfast love and faithfulness then gets echoed throughout text after text after text in the Old Testament, ultimately showing up in, in John 1, We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, which is a fair translation from the Hebrew to the Greek of the Hebrew here. But Jesus' glory is manifested in its fullness of grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. That word for steadfast love, again, um, is God's covenant loyal love. Now, there's a sense in which we can speak of God loving the earth. He does. He loves the animals, he loves the birds, he loves the trees. But that's never used, this word, of his love for those things. This is covenant love. This is loyal love. This is marriage love, if you will. I'm commanded to love everyone here, but I'm commanded to love my wife in a special way. I've promised to love my wife in a special way. I've covenanted to love my wife in a special way. This is God's love of covenant. This is his gospel love, if you will. By the way, gospel, good news from the God who is good. And so this assumes God is Savior. This this only has meaning to those who've tasted of his goodness and seen his gospel love. It's been hinted at earlier in his shepherding, but I want to make it explicitly clear here. The one who came and said he was the good shepherd, Jesus, died on a cross the, the way that that name of God gets resolved, I don't know if you saw the tension there in, in, in Exodus 34. I forgive iniquity, but I don't let innocent people go free. I don't know if you saw that tension in Exodus 34. Let's just look at that again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but... Who will by no means clear the guilty? So how does that work? How can God say, without talking out of both sides of his mouth, I forgive sin. I don't let guilty people go free. I forgive sin, but I'll by no means clear the guilty. How does that work? And, And I think it's meant to make us sort of scratch our head when we read this. Then along comes Jesus who says, I'm the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep, and on the cross, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, God becomes both just and justifier. And what that means is this, God forgives sin. How does God forgive sin? His son died for our sins. The son died for our sins, so we might be forgiven, but God by no means let the guilty go free, because on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. And so when Jesus takes on our sin, the Lord punishes him. So it can be truly said that God has punished and will punish every sin ever committed. And it can be truly said that God forgives iniquity. And all of that is set up. You can't see it as clearly from Exodus 34, but when the cross comes, you can make sense of it looking back. 
This is God's goodness and his glory. This is why we should worship him. The psalmist goes to Exodus 34, Exodus 33, for the foundation of why we should worship and serve this God. And then pushing that forward into the New Testament, we see more clearly how it is. And so isn't there reason here to to marvel and wonder? Reasons why, if you need them, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His gospel love endures forever. As long as there's time, as long as you're alive, his gospel love is on the table. His gospel can be received by faith. If you will turn to his son and trust him and commit yourself to him, you can know his gospel love, and it will never end. It will never cease. His steadfast love endures forever. In fact, it is so wonderful that the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says this of it. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. Praise him, thank him, sing to him. And finally, his faithfulness endures to all generations. Not only is God's gospel love sure, but he remains true and faithful. His covenant will not break. His word will not prove void. Every jot and letter of his scripture will be fulfilled. His promises to us are true, even beyond the gospel itself. God is true. His character is true. He remains steadfast and sure and firm. This is, this is the goodness of God. This is God's glory. And this is the reason we have to celebrate. If you're here today and these characteristics of God don't get you passionate and excited, if you're not feeling some joy, then I would plead with you to do some business with God because something is wrong. To know this God, to know his gospel, to know his love, to know his faithfulness, to know his shepherding care and not respond with some amount of passion and joy, that, that's it's inconceivable. And so this psalm calls us to give thanks to God. It calls us to worship him. It calls us to serve him and shout to him and to come into his presence and to know him and to bless him and thank him. It's all built upon a foundation of who he is because of who he is. If you're not passionate about the living God, I would suggest you don't know him very well. But I would invite you to know him better. This psalm invites you to know him better. And so I think it's very fitting now as we close our service that we call the worship team up and we'll sing one more great Reformation hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We don't have a thousand in here, but we'll make a dent. The hymnals are in the back if you need them.